This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1161, entitled Times Sharda Owl. <laughs> <laughs> Our podcast title is Crampod. And I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And here we are, walking at uh, some assorted things coming into the... Holiday season, it is that. Yes, that's really, I know. that's where it's we approaching. are. It, There's Christmas business up. How did it happen? I know. People are getting ready to crack their advent calendars. Advent calendars are one of my favourite things about the, the Christmas season. Do, do you like traditional ones or ones with chocolates behind the little I like the ones where it's like you open it and there's like a whiskey or something. A whiskey? <laughs> a whiskey <laughs> advent calendar. Really, really impressive ones. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, so I, Christmas. Coming up, um, I thought I'd do some Christmas movies over the next couple of weeks. Nice. Krampus will be one of them today. (laughs) (laughs) Zero G ode to Christmas movies. I've got a copy of um, It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, yeah. I I do. I do. (laughs) Most of the other ones are like this. (laughs) In fact, pretty much all of the other ones are in this sort of vein. But we'll start off with a really pleasant time I had on the weekend. Um... Uh, seeing Doctor Who Shada, S H A D A. It's not um, Shado as in uh, Gary Anderson's UFO series. But um, yeah, usually when I get to review a pre 21st century Doctor Who serial, it's a, a new DVD or Blu ray release. Mm. Very rarely it's an actual lost story, one that was junked sometime after broadcast and for which there may only be an audio soundtrack. It's dialogue and music, or some remaining individual episodes which have been rediscovered or surviving. What they've been doing lately, where there has been some live-action video discovered or in the archives, is closing the loop with newly created animated footage. And Doctor Who Shada, well, that's even more of a curiosity than all of the above. It's very complicated, all of this. So they released this one at the cinema on the weekend. Uh, as far as I know, and I saw it at a, a village cinema in, in Southland, um, I went there because they've got this new train station open and it was like this shiny new portal to um, magic. <laughs> Actually, just a minor detail I noticed about that. They got the, um, the platform height right so that uh, you could roll off a wheelchair or a scooter or a pram to the it's straight. refreshing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. It's, <laughs> in fact... Uh, the guy who was in the scooter who was um, going to get off there, the, the driver had to get out, go and say, no, no, you can just drive out yeah. without putting down a little portable yeah. ramp. And, and I thought that was funny because all the drivers are going to have to do that. <laughs> For a while. For a while until yeah. people get the hang of it. Great idea, though. But it was like stepping into the uh, into some sort of science fiction set because it's all gleaming stainless steel and mm. so on. Shiny and new. This is why we call um, Premier Andrews Dan Dare. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, enough of the politicising. Well, actually, probably some more of it coming up with Doctor Who. So um, 
Doctor Who Sharda. It's written by that other intergalactic hitchhiker, Douglas Adams. It was a, an originally uncompleted, unaired serial. It was slated to appear around about the end of the 1979-1980 season. Uh, production was shut down due to a BBC technician strike. And uh, I almost called them technicians because that's what they call them in Doctor Who. And ultimately, only around 50% of the story was filmed including the location work in Cambridge. In spite of some additional tinkering, it was eventually abandoned only to be frequently resurrected (laughs) in um, both an abbreviated form on VHS and later DVD and then it was reworked for a big Finnish audio production to feature Paul McGann, who's the eighth Doctor, in the title role instead of Tom Baker, who was the popular fourth Doctor and whose era Sharda originally fell into. Um, the other audio recreations, um, there's, a, I think, a talking book read by Lala Ward, played Romana in the series, uh, and there's also a novelisation. And for a, a, something that didn't, um, that didn't go too well <laughs> in terms of uh, actually appearing, uh, it's actually had a, quite a bit of longevity with it. Yeah. Now, uh, of course, Tom Baker plays the, the Doctor. Lala Ward is the second Romana, the second... Um, Regeneration of Romana and um, – or is that the first regeneration? Well, I don't know. It's the second one we saw at least. Uh, David Brealy is the voice of K-9 Mark II, the little tin doggy, and we've got some other people in there who we'll get to in a moment. The story is that two time lords, the Doctor and Romana, journey to Cambridge University to consult an old friend, Professor Cronatus. <laughs> only to encounter an alien genius who also needs the absent-minded academic's help, but for a much darker end, of course. He's not just there to get his term paper marked. Now, um, I saw this at the cinema, and obviously there are challenges for a modern audience. Um, there's fuzzy picture quality. I mean, mm. what, a, what a horror that We've is. We've been so spoiled, haven't yeah, we? So spoiled. Uh, you know, it's not like IMAX or anything. <laughs> And, and even so, we're spoiled in Doctor Who terms too because they've been releasing a lot of the new Doctor exactly. Who first. With it's nice, high-quality yeah. images. Uh, there's the, the splicing together of, uh, I think, six multiple episodes whose dramatic beats were designed for cliffhanger serialisation. So that doesn't work too well. Mm. Uh, and, you know, you, you're probably going to find this fairly slow going if you're used to those punchy, within-an-hour new Doctor Who stories. Sure. Um, yeah, all of that. It's, it's, it's still Tom Baker's Doctor and Lala Ward's Romana and a thing of quietly chuffy, nostalgic joy. <laughs> the low-budget animation plays better this time around as we're up to a colour era beyond the similar reconstruction of the power of the Daleks that they did, which was all black and white. And it adds broader contrast to the tonal variations. The Cambridge setting is also rendered in more detail than the off-world colony and power of the Daleks. And there are a number of amusing Easter eggs scattered throughout in the drawings. I'll leave those to you to find. The transition from live action to animation is handled with some flair and because uh, it's interspersed instead of being entire episodes Mm. for the most part, um, it's kind of cool the way they've done it. You know, like occasionally you'll see... um, uh, the sky of Cambridge, uh, the the and then they'll pan down mm. live action sky down to the animated set, 
the animated drawing. So I, I found that they really did quite well with that this time around. It was a problem with the uh, the Power of the Daleks one. Now, even if writer Douglas Adams is running gag about tea time and they sit down and have tea so many times in this, mm-hmm. like a bunch of hobbits, even though that's over full to overflowing, it's still Douglas Adams, for God's sake, mm. you know. <laughs> More joy there. It's good to see Romana and even that bloody tin doggy again as well. Um, the weekend screenings uh, might have been it for the cinema. I haven't been able to find any other ones. I might be wrong there. They're gearing up for the screening of the Christmas special of New Doctor Who on December 26th now. I think it would have not been a very well-regarded story back in the day um, if the uh, strike hadn't shut it down. It's hard to say really how the story might have worked out in its original form. Um, it's uh, it, it's trying to be uh, another Doctor Who story called City of Death. Um, it's not as good as some of the really good ones from that era. I mean, it's not as crazy as um, Douglas Adams' The Pirate Planet, for example. Um, but, you know, um, I just had a lot of fun just watching yeah. it, just to see um, <laughs> the fourth Doctor up there in all of his glory Aww. once again. And there's, a, there's a, a special moment, which most of the fans already know, about um, they did get... Uh, well, this is kind of a spoiler, I suppose, so... I've se- I, I mean, even as a non-Who person, I've seen um, news and things about this. So oh, think, really? Yeah. Ooh. It's quite... I'm so, a nerd still. It comes up in my nerd channels. <laughs> okay, so you know that um, Tom Baker actually come back for yeah. this one. Yeah, I think that's so lovely. Yeah. I think it's great, it was, great it idea. It was exceptionally sweet. And, of course, they've got so much dialogue remaining from this one, even though it wasn't fully recorded originally. Mm. Everybody else has chipped in along the way, and, and I think that they've got um, some of them back as well. Yeah. That's an interesting thing. Um, people's voices, they don't, they don't age as much as their bodies, mm. but they do beyond a certain point. Mm. So you can sort of tell that Tom Baker is much older than he was then, but, you know, I mean, it's a difference between um, 850 and not... And, and a thousand and something. Yeah, sure. Oh, I also mentioned there's a couple of characters in this that I think actually would have made pretty good um, companions. And the guy who played uh, Dr. Cronitis, Dennis Carey, um, did actually end up in other Doctor Whos later on. He was the Keeper in The Keeper of Truck and and also um, uh, the Borad's avatar in a story called Time Lash. Seen him around in so many different shows. I wouldn't be surprised to see him... uh, kicking around in Harry Potter or something like that in the background. <laughs> actually, I might, because this was a long time ago. I don't know if he's actually with us. I might be very surprised. Hello, this is Paul McGann. I play the eighth incarnation of The Doctor, and you are listening to 3 FM. hope that uh, the Doctor Who Shatter story will be released on DVD eventually. In fact, I know it I'm will. Ill. Yeah. <laughs> they know what the fans want. Yeah, that's it. Over to you, Megan. Yes. All right. Well, I've read a book. So <laughs> um, I thought I might discuss that. So first of all, I should give a shout out. I read this book as part of a book club that I'm a member of mm-hmm. um, where we read, we started off reading Stella Prize long and shortlisted novels. So that's the Australian prize for female writers. Yeah. And then uh, we sort of whipped through that for a while and then we decided we'd turn our attention to there's a British equivalent, which is used to be called the Orange Prize and is now called the Bailey's Prize. And so we read long and shortlisted novels um, from who, that were from that prize. So anyway, The Bees was nominated for the Baileys in 2015. It did not win, sadly, um, but 
I took a little look at this because I think there's been a little bit of buzz, pun intended, um, and it's called The Bees. Mm-hmm. So, And it's by Laleen Paul. And basically it's a dystopian novel, but it's set inside a beehive. So the characters are all bees and the kind of hierarchy and the world that's built is based around sort of real life as far as I can tell, bee behaviour. So, all right, so it's a couple of years old. Let's dive into it. So there's been a a lot of kind of press around it because obviously it's tapping into some of the themes that are really popular right now. It's been described as a bit of a handmaid's tale, Hunger Games. Like it's very much um, a female-centric book, obviously, because bees, um, you know, they serve a Mm -hmm. queen, largely female. So it's kind of a very cool idea. Like when you sort of hear about the premise, you think it can go wonderfully or it could be an absolute disaster. I found the book to be really, really interesting and well thought out. I think it has some flaws, which I'll get to later, but let me set the scene for you. So we're inside a hive. We're following one particular worker, Flora 717. So in the novel, Paul sets out um, all these different kins and different sort of levels of bee, um, which as far as I can tell, this is the thing that I found fascinating about the book and I find bees fascinating anyway, is thinking a bit about what is built on real life bee fact and what, I mean, there are obviously areas where it's been embellished Mm. and kind of moulded to create a better narrative and really help with the world building. So it's not strictly um, sort of a factual thing, but there's clearly elements where she's taken what a bee would do in real life and kind of moulded this world and this story and created these. I mean, obviously the bees talk and so forth. Um, I mean, bees maybe do talk, but... You know, they're written in English, let's just say that. They so dance. She's, she's given them language. They do dance in the novel mm-hmm. and that's a big part of it. And so she details there's um, the drone bees. She details these worker bees, which really clean the hive, forager bees, which will obviously go out and collect the pollen and so forth. And she kind of sets out all the different areas of the hive. Like, so, for example, where the honey and the honeycomb is is called the treasury because obviously the honey is sort of the treasure. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's quite nifty like that in the way that it's sort of been described and it is a wooden um, hive that there is a beekeeper for but the novel apart from a very short segment at the start and the end and one very small line in the middle it's all bee perspective there's not really any appearance of humans per se it's obviously set inside this human world they make reference to a town and a human man and things like that but it's very much focused on this one hive so we follow our B Flora 717, and like in any good dystopian novel, Flora's a little bit special. She's got some special talents, uh, even though she's quite downtrodden and um, her kin, which sort of the sanitation workers are very much <laughs> frowned upon by all the other bees, treated like garbage and so forth. I mean, how can we have a great uprising of a single bee if they're not downtrodden what, first? What, what, what do bees do for sanitation? What, what are they keeping clean? They- well, I would, I guess, I suppose if they're creating um, in the book, it's it cl- cleaning away dead bees from inside oh, the hive, okay. um, cleaning different pod, like sort of arrival pods and things. Very much sets it out in kind of human terms, like there's a nursery, mm-hmm. and so they'll go in and clean that nursery. But it's always informed by this element of real bee behaviour, as I like to call it, based on a, a true story, a true bee story. Um, so, and so she's normally would have a quite lowly position in the hive and live out her days being, you know, practically spat on by other bees and 
working amongst her kin where they don't they don't speak but they you know work in a sense with a sense of camaraderie but obviously flora is no ordinary bee and she displays certain talents that maybe her kin don't usually have and then this means that she's thrown into a series of uh unusual situations <laughs> and uh, unusual encounters where she gets to see a lot more of the hive and interact with a lot more different kin than she normally would for a bee of her status so I found Flora to be very well written. I think overall the world that she builds builds within the hive is very well thought out. Uh-huh. There's a lot of good detail in there and I think as far as world building goes, it's excellent. But I do think the plot lets it down somewhat. Yeah. So I think the pacing of the novel... I mean, look, I'm not going to lie. I did blitz through this quite quickly so that I could speak about it today. But I found it sagged in the middle... And it felt quite rushed at the end, mm. reaching sort of the, the climax. And they really only introduced what... I really only understood what the core tension was later in the book. A lot of it is kind of about Flora's journey, which is great, but there wasn't really a sense of urgency or as much urgency that I, as I think there should have been introduced. And I think it should have been introduced earlier and those plot points maybe um, treated differently, more well thought out. I'm not sure. But that being said, I think it's quite a rich book. I think it was really interesting. It was fun to read. It wasn't at all twee. Like, I think there's a risk where it could have been handled, you know, it makes you cringe a little bit or you're not, you not too sure. You don't want it to be B-twee. That would well, be. this is it. I was, I was a bit worried that maybe it would veer into that territory. And even when you first think about how it might be written, I wasn't sure, but then as soon as you start reading it, you're like, oh, oh, I see what she's doing here. Like, she's very much built this world that we can recognise, but the inhabitants happen to be bees and have these special bee powers. So I think it's very well constructed. I think the idea is very nicely realised. I think the pacing needs a little bit of, um, I don't know, the pacing just wasn't quite right for me. But I do think Flora's character is fantastic. I think maybe she's definitely the best character in it. I think a lot of the other characters aren't quite as well realised, but there's a lot of them to keep track of in terms of that. Why do I think that um, Flora should be played, but voiced by Renee Zellweger? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the thing I was thinking, and I mean, I hate that we always think this now. I was like, I don't ever think this could be made into a film. Just the way it's described, it's described from this very human perspective so you can get that level of empathy with the characters. But obviously at the end of the day we're talking about a bee that's, you know, vomiting out wax or whatever or pulling wax out of its groin or whatever. And um, I also think there's some lovely use of language as well and the way she describes some of the bee processes I think have been very well thought out. Overall, I think it was a really fun novel. Like I think that you would be quite... I think it was interesting to see how an idea like that could actually be realised. And I do think bees are obviously very, very fascinating Is there any um, creatures. sign of uh, colony collapse disorder in this? Uh, What's that? Colony collapse disorder, you know, the uh, the syndrome that's that's overtaken many of the world's beehives. Yeah, because the bee population's in trouble, isn't it? Yeah. What's the, what's the real life? Um, I'm not sure exactly where they are at standing at the moment with that. With that. It, but obviously if we mm. lose the bees, yeah. we, we, we toast. And they're fascinating. They're really fascinating when you think about all the things they do and then they create this 
substance that we then just consume mm. um, and they put all this work into it and it is interesting because it is a very female driven society and they serve the one queen. There's some religious elements in it that I think work, some work, some don't work but overall I think certain sections are stronger than others. Mm. So they're believable. Very believable. Deserving of the buzz. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's some small flaws in the book, but I, I do think it's a pretty pleasant read. Mm. I think it ran a little long. I think it could have been a shorter novel and yeah. still done what it did best more succinctly. So they drone on a little. Oh. <laughs> Step away from the You're microphone. You're on fire. <laughs> um, and there's also some carnage scenes too. They don't shy oh, away no. from a bit of violence. A bit of uh, watership down. Yeah, yeah. So Anthropomorphic aggro. I, I recommend it. So it's called The Bees. Uh, it's called The Bees, a novel, I suppose, to mm. distinguish it from any non-fiction titles. And the author's name is spelt... Um, Laline Paul. So it's P-A-U-L-L. Yeah. And, yeah, so I think I'd be keen to read another of her books. I mm-hmm. think she's done um, a really lovely job with this. I think that if you're even remotely interested in bees, check it out. I'm actually more interested in reading about the elements of the book that... Were, how they were drawn from real life because she did do a lot of research yeah. into bees to try to mould it around the real life experience. How does it fare as a dystopic novel? Are we talking teen dystopia or...? Mm, no, I think it, it goes outside the bounds of that. Mm-hmm. I do think the dystopic elements, if you took away the bee element, it's not as strong a novel. Like I know it sounds like a gimmick, it's so well done that I think it really lifts up the novel. But if you took away the whole B thing, it's a very stock standard dystopian narrative. Okay. Um, but I do actually think that layer of it being B's does enough work to, that you forgive it for being quite a straightforward dystopian narrative. I don't think it's that complex in terms of, of that. I kind of like it if B's weren't a dystopia. Like what if they, <laughs> what if they were like a, a utopia or something like that and it's all real harmonised? And Well, I think there's elements of that, but, you know, it comes at a price sometimes. Mm. Oh, so. yes. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, that's it. That's the bees, I enjoyed it. Um, yeah. you can. I read it on Kindle, but I oh. know you can obviously yeah. grab it on paperback or mm. in any good bookstore. Mm. The Kindle experience or any, indeed, reading any book on a, a tablet or a device, I've... I found it um, interesting. I'm not unhappy about it when I'm reading on a Kindle. I've got one of those ones that have got the paper white yeah, sure. feel to it. So yep. it feels almost like yeah. paper. Um, I, I, I haven't quite got I, I wish it was actually in a more traditional format, like you could actually open it up and yeah, see the two pages. like you would have had in the 80s science fiction movies, you know, yeah, where yeah, it's yeah. the... I personally think for bedtime reading and travel, mm. it's unrivaled because it's so easy to hold with one hand. You yep. can obviously then stock up on more books if you're travelling and you want to get something, especially if you live overseas. I think that would be a big plus. You can get English novels quite easily. Mm. But, I mean, there's nothing... I don't think anything really beats an actual holding an actual book, but... I mean, as a lover of Stephen King, I really feel like I need the Kindle to, so yeah. I don't get a bad back from carrying <laughs> around all those doorstops. That's an but. idea. And, of course, it is cheaper to buy the books It is, on that. But I, I choose. Sometimes I'll think that's something I'll get on Kindle and then other times I'll think that's something I'd like to have a hard copy yeah, of yeah. or I'd like to read in hard copies. So. Sometimes it's not a bad way to um, to get into a series. Yeah, that's true. If you're go, not 
not sure about oh, it. I really like this now. I better go and buy the, the series. Exactly. Uh, or um, I found it particularly useful for science fiction magazines, which still yeah, exist. Yeah, right. You know, on their um, monthly, bi-monthly, whatever schedule they're on. And uh, instead of having ending up with a vast collection of mm. <laughs> you know, heavy magazines to cart around. Do you, you like still that. prefer reading comics in hard copy too, don't you? I've actually um, done both, yeah. quite a bit of both um, recently. Um, yeah, I, I I still prefer to have the comic, but I'm in that stage of I, I prefer to have the comic, but mm. I haven't got any more room for too many. And I think it's a mental thing too. Like I remember there was a time when I would always love to get DVD versions of movies I'd really liked or mm. make sure that I had a hard copy at home. And I don't really do that anymore because it's generally always available pretty easily streaming or I would prefer renting um, it off iTunes. I, I've actually been reading comics on, on a larger screen. Mm, yeah, know, I think you need a larger tablet size yeah, yeah, to I do that. The Kindle is too small for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is, this is legitimate discussion on zero G. Well, cause because I think it's, it's, we accumulate a lot of stuff. Yeah. I mean, just the other day I was having a conversation about my phone. <laughs> a conversation. <laughs> just collectors <laughs> to people. That's, that's for sure. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, we gather a lot of stuff and you've got to think about but there's no where digital you equivalent. want to downside. No, so that, that's a bad example. <laughs> but obviously... Yeah, for even CDs and DVDs, obviously I have all of that streamed oh, now. God, so. Digital figurine collections. <laughs> like that would be kind of cool, like a hologram and it rotates. But you can do actually, actually do that. There, you know, there's a, there there are figurines. Uh, I think Disney has done quite a few of these, um, where you've got a, a thing that interfaces mm, with your computer and yeah, you can yeah, play yeah. games with the Skylanders and things. Yeah, I think. yeah. Um, and some really that, nice figurines too. I think they've actually discontinued those. <laughs> They have, actually. Yeah. Yeah, so you can get them cheap. <laughs> hmm. Broadcast mode. This is Crichton, the service android aboard the Starship Zero-G on 3 triple R FM. SOS! SOS! Mayday! Help! I am being held captive by rogue makeup artists who want to cover my face in plaster and latex rubber. Panic mode. I don't know. Anyway, uh, can you just back announce the book too because it was a difficult author name. Oh, yes. So it's called The Bees, mm-hmm. a novel, and it's by Laline, L-A-L-I-N-E, Paul, with an extra L on the end as to what you would expect. So mm. I do recommend it. I think it was a, a nice little read and I think it's a very cool realisation of a pretty novel idea. Hmm. Actually, I was, um, I was at the cinema the other day there the ad for a film called Downsizing. Have you seen that ad yet? No, I haven't. It's a trailer for a film with um, Matt Damon mm. uh, and they shrink the, everybody down in order to economise. Oh. Uh, so they've got a, a, a downsized town. No, I think I have seen mm. a trailer for that a really long time ago. Yeah, well, it's, it's the time to appear is, being, is dwindling as we speak. I've been seeing, <laughs> sorry, just brief, brief interjection. Mm. I've been looking at some of the Justice League. There's been some funny tweets and listicles oh. and things around that. And then there's this picture of Ben Affleck and the whole cast kind of promoting the film. And he just looks weary, like he's over it. And the caption something like, you might be tired, but you're never going to be Ben Affleck promoting Justice League tired. <laughs> And why is he doing that? Because I'm flat, man. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> but oh, sorry, go we, on. We did actually play the Danny Elfman uh, Justice theme 
Justice League theme at the start of the show today. The Danny but Hoffman we are one. trying to branch out from the superheroes, we are, aren't right. we? So We're in spite of um, <laughs> feeling utterly brutalised by watching all of The Punisher... Yes, you finished. I, I'm continuing on. It's never finished. The war goes on forever. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Okay. Uh, but this is uh, another book that is not... Actually, it's entirely grim too, I'm <laughs> It is a book called The Two of Swords, or Swords, and it's by K.J. Parker. It's the first volume in this series. It's an Orbit paperback. Two of the volumes are out already. Um, I think the third one must be in the works. And it's by, as I said, K.J. Parker. Now, I read the first book in this trilogy over the weekend and... Parker's books for me, um, they're my ideal fantasy go-to reads at the moment. Oh, okay. Tell me more. Uh, I'm getting as much sheer pleasure out of them as I've done from, say, the work of the ever-versatile Barbara Hambly or the clever horror pastiches of Kim Newman. Um, One thing that appeals to me about this book straight up, uh, magic hardly gets a mention in Parker's books, Hmm. uh, which is no real loss for me. (laughs) And that means there's much more room for startlingly well-nuanced character studies, expertly researched historical details that have an authentic ring to them, which are deployed, of course, for verisimilitude in a world that isn't actually supposed to be Earth, Mm. you know, the usual fantasy trope. Yep. Uh, But which is... Earth, not Earth. (laughs) Yeah, Earth, not Earth. Uh, Not Earth enough so that we can get away with fudging geography and time and events, you know. Um... There's a darkly, darkly grim wit underlying all of this that could match words against the likes of David Drake or George R.R. R. Martin or Raymond D. Feist. Mm. The story resol- revolves around a number of characters caught up within observing and perhaps deliberately prolonging, we shall see, a long-running civil war between two sides of a sundered empire, east and west. Nothing too complicated there. But, as has been the case in previous series by Parker, the writer personalises things with one of several character focuses being placed upon a pair of brothers who are each leading the opposing armies. Which, of course, is, you know, sort of parallels history in some respects. Fairly standard. Hmm. Their knowledge of each other is so perfect that the war grinds on for year after year in bloody deadlock. Well, other characters also arrive... Mostly two by two, but not in so straightforward a, a way as having a you know a, a, an actual um, blood relationship. <laughs> Although some of them are steeped in blood, there's the two country levy militiamen, one an expert bowman, and the other um, and the other a, uh, a novice but uh, talented thief. They're both carried away by the war from their country village. On a more sophisticated level, another duo is formed by an absolutely deadly assassin spy who's off on... Who's, uh, her, her off-mission hobby is to collect and read books. <laughs> but um, she's absolutely unable to read the infatuation that the greatest songwriter-performer of the age has for her. And then this songwriter... Uh, I mean, think of um, um, somebody, you know, one of the great opera singers and he's actually able to travel between the two warring empires because he's so famous and beloved and he, of course, is also a spy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would be a waste of an opportunity. Yeah, as to it? be expected. He's also a counter-spy. Oh. 
And here's also something else too. Linking all of these characters is The Lodge, a complex shadow organisation that's part Freemasonry, part Illuminati, part religion and part tarot card gambling ring. Um, Yes, I know. Tarot card gambling ring. Yeah, well, I I did some research on this. Um, You know me, I'm a sceptic. I have nothing but contempt for the whole idea of reading fortunes and stuff. But uh, absolute devoted love for the actual artwork done on tarot cards. Oh, yeah, gorgeous. Beautiful stuff. Uh, I know the Two of Swords is a tarot card thingy and that's one of the reasons this is a fantasy novel. I'd be concerned maybe, but um, KJ Parker doesn't wander far off into La La Land with it, using it more as a key for chapter headings and book titles. Uh, It's a framework, um, character code names. Mm. And as a reminder that tarot cards were for gambling with, to start with. Well, there you go. And still are in, uh, I think, France is actually, they actually like to play the games with those. Um, I was quite surprised to find that K.J. Parker is a pseudonym for a British writer. Um, Tom Holt, H-O-L-T. And I only found this out on the weekend. Uh, They kept that secret for 17 years. <laughs> Thinking about it though, his extensive catalogue of funny fantasy books were milestones on the road to his much harder edged epic fantasy works. It actually feels like he's reinvented himself for the epic fantasy genre across several very fine trilogies and equally sophisticated standalone books. So I read his um, funny fantasy books, there's like one called like great titles to like uh, Dijin Rummy. You know, I mean, they were, they were great title books and he was actually one of a crop of um, funny fantasy writers that all sort of span out in the wake of Terry mm. Pratchett, you know. It's like um, uh, Robert Rankin and, uh, you know, there's just quite a few of them around at the time. And I actually find this one probably more funnier than some of the other novels that he's written in the epic fantasy vein as K.J. Parker. Um, but still there, the humour in there, it, it carries it through, only it just ends more bloodily than it uh, used to do. And it's not as... Well, actually, it can be quite deliberately silly too. You know, they, they do a, um, a summation of the, uh, the reasons to, for, of the war at one stage. Why are we fighting this war? Because evil must be resisted. And sooner or later there comes a time when men of principle have to make a stand. But at this stage in the proceedings, he added with a slightly lopsided grin, mostly from force of habit... Mm-hmm. You know, it's, um, and this actually gives you a good insight into what comes across as a very realistically written world. Mm. And there are some familiar tropes in this story. If you've read any of his other um, trilogies, uh, characters often act against their own best interests. Um, things seldom work out for the best. And if they do, then it's somebody else's worse. You know, sure. so... Um, I refer you to... You could start really anywhere of his other books, but it might be amusing if you actually read one of his funny fantasy books as Tom Hall first. Uh, but anyway, um, the Fencer Trilogy, which is uh, about um, a fencer at law. And this is not somebody who builds fences, but who fights duels okay. for legal... As a, as a, as a legal a profession. A legal means. Yeah, you know, you have a code duelo where it can be settled by a duel. You've got to have somebody who can do who's that. Who's going to be doing it. Yeah, and he's like... It's actually like being a lawyer, only with a sword. <laughs> the Scavenger Trilogy, um, and this is about a, a man who may or may not be a god. 
Mm. He wakes up on a battlefield with amnesia and discovers he's being hunted by enemies he no longer remembers. Uh, that's called Shadow Pattern and Memory, that one. Um, oh, my God, the... Um, I don't say that lightly in these cases, but uh, the Engineer Trilogy, which is about um, an engineer. And so this particular trilogy centres upon inventions that he's made and how they dislocate the entire societies and civilizations. Um, there are some standalone ones, The Company, The Folding Knife and The Hammer. Uh, and now this new trilogy, the I suppose we'll call it the Swords Trilogy um, yeah. Uh, volume 1, The Two of Swords, and Volume 2, which is again called that. So I haven't actually changed the title. They've just given it different volume numbers. Um, these are just these bees and his <laughs> sophisticated... <laughs> On topic, yeah. ...sophisticated um, fantasy storytelling. Um, you enjoy them and you hate them at the same time. Mm. The writing is so damn good. And this writer does his historical research so well and his uh, in-genre archery, sword fighting, uh, so, so very well that you actually think... You actually think it's a shame he's not busy doing them instead of writing the novels. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But you're bloody glad that he has written them at the same time. Okay. Okay. Um, Yeah, indeed. K.J. Parker, his books there. Highly, highly recommended by me. Hi, I'm Andrea Thompson, and I played Talia Winters, resident commercial telepath on Babylon 5. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R, and I know what you're thinking. Yeah, you're thinking that uh, Sigrid was covering a Leonard Cohen song there, but everybody oh. knows that. <laughs> a really good song for a not-so-great movie, Justice yes. League. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, Krampus, <laughs> K-R-A-M-P-U-S... And just saying his name will summon him, apparently. Uh, it's a 2015 American Christmas comedy horror movie. So. It really just blitzed right past me. I had no idea about this movie and it has Adam Scott in it and I really like him. Mm. So It's uh, based on the um, European um, folk character. You know, yes. Uh, and this is the, the, the Krampus Christmas monster that does evil, terrible things. Yes. And <laughs> this, this is why you shouldn't be naughty at Christmas. Uh, much more entertaining than Santa Claus and all that sort of stuff. Well, and I think, you know, I like this idea. It's not just like you won't get presents. It'll be like you get a bad present. Mm. Michael Doherty uh, is, is the director and he also wrote it as well. Uh, it um, is – this guy is actually yeah, quite impressive in his um, in his CV. He worked on X2 and Superman Returns, well, perhaps not. Mm. So that impressive there, but he's also directing the upcoming sequel and co-writing it, uh, Godzilla: King of Monsters. Oh, so we'll see how that you goes, know, he's got we? a lot going for him here. Basically, it's got the uh, it's a very eighties sort of style pitch. This one, yep. you've got your dysfunctional family at Christmas. Um, some of them believe in Santa Claus and send letters to him and so on. Others do not. Um, there is a a, uh, a curmudgeonly old. Um, uh, grandmother who oh. speaks mostly in German. Yes, brilliant. Yeah, you know, this is that whole 80s Joe Dante sort of gremlins type thing in a way. Um, they they kind of lose their Christmas spirit, which mm. is when the Krampus comes in. Uh, Tony Collette is in this too. Yeah. yeah she's it's a got great a bit of a cast. Isn't? It really flew under the radar. The, there's a blizzard, the power goes out, you know, Ooh. it's all going to go to hell in a handbasket, including um, the voices of Seth Green. Who makes an, a kind of a vocal appearance as a gingerbread man? Um, I don't really. Yeah. 
<laughs> what know what you, to expect from this film? Um, expect a lot, actually. Uh, it is... It's not what you think in places, okay. uh, but it is in others. Um, you know, I mean, the Christmas uh, sales are on during this film and uh, it starts with a slow-motion assault on a store uh, with security tasing people. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know. Set based on real life. <laughs> and Bing Crosby being used to say, yeah, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, basically. Okay. Um, a Christmas Carol's on television in this world. The cousins are coming to town to stay, like the Griswold's relatives. Yes. And they even have an obnoxious dog. So. I was going to say, there's got to be some obnoxious, obnoxious kids or like a weird, unruly dog that eats stuff it's not supposed to. There's, a, there's an, uncle, an Uncle Howie. Of um, course there is. Who's a... He's a gun nut like Bert Gummer in the Is he the a Tremie bit series. unruly? I bet oh, you he's unruly. Well, actually, he's got a lot of guns. That's pretty unruly. Um, it's a bit of a ghost town in, in, in there, there aren't as many people around, but there's also a reason for that. Um, so you get that 80s feel of not quite as populated by as many expensive mm-hmm, mm-hmm, extras mm-hmm. as you might have. Um, there is actually a bit – it is a bit like Tremors in that there are things under the snow instead of under the ground. Um there's some CGI animation in it as they tell the grandmother's story, so okay, I kind of cool. like that. Uh, there are elves and gingerbread men who are a bit like the gremlins. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is a, And the Krampus itself is very, very well realised and actually quite creepy. Okay. And there's a twist in this story that I really, really loved. All right. Um, so I'm not, it's not even going to go there for that, um, apart from that. So it's called Krampus with a K. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have seen it on various streaming services at different times. Don't know if it's there at the moment, but I got the DVD because I wanted this to have forever for Christmases thereafter. <laughs> <laughs> Christmas tradition. Well, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much a normal um, geek. My Christmas DVDs are generally not It's a Wonderful Life, although mm. I do have a copy of that. I have a copy of that too. Um, but, you know, it's more like... Um, Die Hard. <laughs> silent Night, Zombie Night. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole bunch of That them. Nazi Santa thing. Doesn't there some Nazi zombie Santas oh, yeah, or something? Always, or Snow, so, Snow Nazis yeah, Jack or Frost, like which is actually an awful movie. Yeah, that one could um, have been creepy. Leprechaun. <laughs> that counts, I suppose. Anyway, no, it doesn't. But um, really, there's a whole bunch of these ones. And, and this one is, is one of the cream of the crop called Krampus by Michael Doherty. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, that's it for today on Zero G. Comes up next with Astral Glamour. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.